0: Well, today we are beginning a brand new sermon series that we have simply titled Parables. Uh, Because for the majority, if not all of the summer, uh, that's what we're going to be studying together as a faith family, the parables of Jesus. And what are parables? Well, simply put, uh, they are short, meaning-filled word pictures. They are stories that illuminate profound spiritual truths. Or another easy way to think about parables, they are earthly stories with kingdom truths. They are earthly stories with kingdom truths. And I think that's why uh, a lot of Jesus's parables are so well known, because they are simple, everyday stories that are typically really easy to remember. And yet at the same time, uh, what we will certainly see in this series is that these simple everyday stories always point us to a much greater and deeper reality. Parables clarify truth for us. They teach us about the character of God. They teach us about the nature of man. And they give us insights into the kingdom of God, such as the value of the kingdom, the grace of the kingdom, uh, how the kingdom grows, and how we can be a part of God's kingdom. And so that's uh, why we are studying Jesus's parables together, or at least some of them uh, throughout this summer, so that we might together come to a richer and deeper understanding of God's kingdom. And that's my prayer for us. Well, uh, that brings us then to Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible with you uh, today, I want to encourage you to turn there with me, uh, today, we're going to begin our parables series uh, with the story of the Good Samaritan, and I think it's fair of me to say that this is probably the best known of all of Jesus's parables. You know, actually, whether you're inside or outside of the church, um, the majority of people, uh, at least I know, they know this story. And I think typically when we, we think, or when people think of the Good Samaritan, people tip typically think of uh, sacrificial kindness. And so uh, maybe you've seen a hospital with this name or maybe uh, you've seen an NGO uh, take on uh, uh, this familiar name. But you know, here's also what I've seen is that with that familiarity, uh, what I think has often happened is that people actually think they know this story uh, better than they actually do. Because what we're going to see uh, today is that the Good Samaritan is not primarily a story about helping those in need or even showing compassion and care to strangers or outcasts in society, though uh, those implications are certainly there, that in fact, uh, the Good Samaritan, uh, this story is actually all about how a person can obtain eternal life. Uh, That's the point of this parable. And we know that's the case because uh, that is the question that initiates the entire conversation we're about to enter into, to which the story of the Good Samaritan is the conclusion. You see, uh, understanding the context of scripture is always uh, so important. And that is certainly the case with parables and this story here. And so look with me, uh, starting at verse 25. We see here that Jesus is teaching. And in the middle of his teaching, a certain lawyer, also known as a scribe or an expert, uh, expert in the law of Moses, he stands up because he has something to say. Actually, he has a question. And so look what happens. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test. And so right away, as we enter into the story, we see here that this lawyer who stands up, his, his motivation during this encounter is not very positive. Uh, he's not really there to, to really deeply listen to Jesus or to seek answers or to seek truth. He's really there to test Jesus, uh, to trap Jesus and perhaps even humiliate him. And here is his question. For Jesus, he stands up and he asks this question. He says, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And let me just say this: this is actually the greatest question uh, you could ever ask, and it's going to be the greatest question that could ever be answered. And and know this as well: it was uh, this question was continually on on the minds and the hearts uh, of Jewish people uh, at this time. You know, Jewish people, they knew that the Old Testament uh, promised them eternal life, that, that it promised them uh, an eternal kingdom where you would live in and with the presence uh, of God. And of course, they all wanted to inherit this. They all wanted to obtain uh, eternal life, which is why Jesus, you'll see throughout his ministry, he gets the same question over and over and over again. And it's also the reason that we see uh, Jesus talk about eternal life so much throughout his ministry. Uh, it's one of the central reasons why Jesus came as well, as well to, to make a way to the kingdom and to offer us a relationship with God forever. And so again, uh, here we have this lawyer. And the context here uh, alludes to the reality that this man believes that he can get right with God By following all the rules and doing all of the right things. Thus the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, but regardless of the motivation, again, this is actually a great question. One that we should all wrestle with and seek to know the answer. How do I belong to God and his kingdom? And so Jesus gives his response. And it actually comes in the form of a question. Notice what Jesus says in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He says, you tell me. Uh, You answer your own question. What does the law say? Uh, How do you interpret the law? you're, You're an Old Testament expert. Tell me what it says. What does God require of you? And of course, right, Jesus knows that this man knows the answer, right? Being who the lawyer was, this was something that he would actually even have memorized. And so the lawyer responds, it's verse 27, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and, all, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's the verse that we shared uh, during the short kid's time today. Uh, but the lawyer here, what we see him do is he, he combines, uh, combines two scriptures here. It's, it's a combination of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. And what we know is that these two passages, they actually sum up the entirety of the law. That if you want to know the thesis of the Old Testament, you need to know these two things, love God and love people. And that's really it. And I think it's worth pointing out as well that the, the verb or the word love here, the verb form of it is actually in the present tense, meaning that you are to constantly and continually love God like this and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, loving God and loving people, in other words, is something that you must always do at all times. There's no exception. That's what was written in God's law. Give perfect love to God and perfect love to men. Love God supremely over and above all, everything else and then care for others, serve others, pray for others, think of others as much as you do yourself. And again, all the time, right? We do both of those things uh, so well, don't we, right? I know I do those things all the time. But again, this is the correct answer, right? The lawyer actually gets it right. And Jesus affirms him in verse 28. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Listen, do this and you will live. In other words, if you want eternal life, Uh, fulfill the law. That's what he's saying. Love God, love people, do that, and you will live. You love God supremely and others completely all the time, and you're in. You're getting into the kingdom. And I think a question that might naturally uh, come from Jesus's response here is, is, is this question, is Jesus saying, that you get or inherit eternal life by doing the right thing, right? Because at first glance, it sort of seems that way, doesn't it? Uh, It seems to contradict the, the good news of the gospel that we see in other places all throughout scripture, right? Which say that we aren't saved by doing Uh, anything really, nothing that we can do on our own, right? We see that. For example, in Romans 3.20, it says this, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by what? The works of the law, right? Or Galatians 2.16, know that a person is not justified by, here it is again, the works of the law, but how are they justified? But by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what's going on here in Luke chapter 10? right? Why does Jesus say this? Well, his point is, right, it's very true. He's trying to say this. It's very true that this is what needs to be done to inherit eternal life. You need to love God, and you need to love people. But what this uh, should ultimately lead us to is the realization that we don't do either of those things. And more than that, we actually can't do that fully and completely, as God requires. Jesus wanted and perhaps he expected the lawyer to think about how high the standard really is. And if the lawyer had any softness of heart or any self-awareness whatsoever, right, I think he, he would have come to that conclusion. He would have replied to Jesus in some sort of way like this. Like, but I can't do that, Jesus. I don't even come, come close to doing that, right? I don't love God all the time. I don't love people the same way that I love myself. And so what does that mean for me, right? He should have said, am I going to miss the kingdom because that's what's required, right? There should have been some level of guilt here, some, some deep conviction, some brokenness, some confession of sin, a cry for help, because again, no one can do this, right? Sure, there are moments when we are very close to God, and there are times where we truly love people. I'm sure you can think of some of those times in your life. But perfectly, right, all the time, not even close. But the lawyer, he doesn't respond that way. Uh, instead, look at how he responds to Jesus. What we're going to see is that he actually tries to find a way out of this, a way around this. He actually gets nitpicky with the definition of terms. He tries to make the the standard more achievable by getting Jesus to clarify exactly who his neighbor is. Meaning this, that there is still a sense within him that he can justify himself. That he believes that he can attain the kingdom of God on his own. That he can work his way to right standing with God, depending on the definition that Jesus provides. And so this lawyer, his true heart is really revealed in verse 29. This is what happens. But he, desiring to justify himself, again, that's the lawyer, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor? And so again, this man is so self-righteous that he, he doesn't evaluate his life at all. With this question, again, he's trying to prove that he's okay, that he passes the test. And notice this, how, how crazy is this? Notice that the lawyer doesn't even question his own love for God. He just skips right over that. It's almost like he's saying here, okay, good, right? I have that total devotion and total love for God thing down, right? I can check that off the box. But let's talk about that whole neighbor thing for a minute, right? This lawyer, he is totally oblivious to his true human condition. And I think there's a really specific reason why Jesus actually asks him uh, or why he asks Jesus to define neighbor to him. Uh, you see, the word neighbor here in Greek, uh, it's plesion, plesion. It literally means one who is near you, one who is near to you. And we, we know at this time that, that Jewish people interpreted this word neighbor in a very limited sense. You see, for them, a neighbor was a, a fellow uh, Jewish person or someone within their religious community. And because of that, there was a distinction for them between neighbors and non-neighbors from people inside of their circle and outsiders, strangers. And we know that they were teaching this way because uh, Jesus actually addresses this teaching in Matthew chapter five. He confronts it. He says, it's being taught wrongly to you to love your neighbor, but to hate your enemy. Again, the, these people, they, they had divided people up, neighbor and non-neighbor, neighbor and enemy. And, and the irony here, really, is that just before this, right, remember the, the lawyer, he quotes Leviticus 19. Remember that? He says, uh, here is what's written in the law, of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That again, it comes from a Leviticus 19.18. Uh, he has that memorized. But look at what Leviticus 19 says just a few verses later in verse 34. This is what it says. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall do what? Love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, yes, love your neighbor. Love those near to you as yourself. But also, just in case you need clarity on this, treat strangers, treat foreigners in the exact same way. Love them the same way that I have loved you and the way that you love yourself. That's what God said. That was a requirement in the Old Testament law. And so how ironic, right? Uh, The religious Jews, like this lawyer, they were so blinded to their own teachings, right? So again, this lawyer, he's standing there, so self-righteous. And he asks, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And if it were me, if I were Jesus, I would have just left him there standing, standing there on his own, shaking my head like, you just have no clue, right? You fool, right? I would have probably... You know, yelled at him, scolded him, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't scold him, he doesn't rebuke him. With grace and compassion, he actually tells him a story. And that's the context with which we need to read the story of the Good Samaritan. And it starts in verse 30. And so here's that story he tells the lawyer A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, uh, from the context here, we can assume that this man is a Jew. And what Jesus tells us is that this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and that's literally meaning downhill in terms of elevation change. If you look at a map, it's actually going uh, going east. And what's also good to know about this scene, this picture that Jesus paints for us, uh, is that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, it was actually a very well-known, a very uh, road, a very commonly traveled road as well. But more than that, it was also known uh, for being a very dangerous road. It was a very dangerous journey from from Jerusalem to Jericho. You can actually still travel that road today uh, if you're if you're willing and able. Um, but if you travel that road, what you'll see, there's a lot of cliffs, uh, a lot of caves. Uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of rocks. It's very windy as it makes it, its way downhill. And so again, it was a very dangerous journey because you can actually just really easily fall uh, off the road. Uh, but it was also dangerous because it's just so so barren. But maybe even more than that and relevant to uh, the story here is that it's dangerous because it was known as being a place uh, where a lot of robberies uh, took place. And so Jesus, again, he casts this story in a really familiar place. Every Jewish person would have connected to what Jesus was talking about here. And so what takes place and what we see in this story is actually, at first, really predictable. This man traveling from Jerusalem uh, down to Jericho... What happens to him? He falls among robbers. And they don't just rob him, follow this. They stripped him down. They take everything and they leave him for dead. And so you can, you can visualize this with me. This man is laying on the road. He's been beaten down, virtually naked, and he is in critical condition. Uh, there is a deep sense of desperation and helplessness here. He is alone on this lonely road with no guarantee that someone would come and find him. But then look at what happens. The story immediately introduces a little bit of hope. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And so at first, for, for a Jewish audience, this should sound like really good news. Right? After all, a priest was somebody like the lawyer who knew the Old Testament law. He knew that you were to show kindness. He knew that you were to minister to strangers. Right? He, he too would have had memorized uh, Leviticus 19.34, which says that if you see a stranger in need, you do whatever it takes to meet his need. Right? He would have certainly even known passages uh, like the one in Exodus chapter 23 that says that even if you find your enemy's donkey in a ditch, uh, you help the donkey, let alone helping the man. Right? This is how you're supposed to act as one of God's people. Right? We know as well, priests were by title. They were servers. They were helpers. And so here he comes, surely aware of what he should do. But look at what happens. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And this is actually very strong language here. This is not just a casual passing by. He actually intentionally avoids the man and he ignores him. He neglects him as he is lying there on the verge of death. And the point here is is really simple you would expect, surely you would expect a priest who represents God to love God enough to love others who are in need. This should be obvious, but he doesn't do it. Well, then the story continues. Jesus says, so likewise, a Levite, this is verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. And so here we have this man uh, from the tribe of, of Levi. Uh, it's one of the 12 groups or 12 tribes of Israel. And they were, were the people group or the people uh, who assisted in the temple. That was their job. They worked as caretakers and helpers. They assisted in the temple. And so uh, you might think of it this way they weren't as, as high on the hierarchy as the, as the priests. There were the, the priests, right? And then the tribe of Levi. Uh, but still, Right, They were religious people. And so we should fully expect uh, this man to care for and help people who are in need. But what does he do? He too ignores the situation and the suffering man. And what I think is really important for us to take away uh, from this story so far is that these two men represented Israel's most educated most cultured, most holy, uh, and most esteemed. Uh, These men were seen to be among the best of Israel, right? But what happens? They didn't stop. See, they knew their Bibles. They devoted their lives to serving God and to serving people. And so, culturally even, people would think of them, right, if anyone is going to get eternal life, if anyone's going to obtain eternal life, it would have been and should be these guys. And yet, even they, they neglect this man. But here's where this story gets really interesting. You know, remember, right, Jesus has just attacked the Jewish religious system. He's basically said that you are not loving people, that your religiosity and position is not good enough, right? And then he introduces one more person. It's verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, uh, it's a bit hard for us to understand how serious this really is. But what Jesus does right here is actually introduce a character who was a Jewish person's worst enemy. Right? You have to understand that at this time, the very existence of Samaritan people was seen as an evil. And so to say that Jewish people hated the Samaritans would be a complete understatement. You see, after the, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive, uh, several hundred years before this time that Jesus is speaking, uh, there were some Jews who remained in the land even though they were conquered. They remained in the north. And what happened was uh, the, the Gentiles who, who now lived there, what they did is common, but they intermarried with many of the Jews who remained there, which to Jewish people was a complete disgrace. Disgrace right, for a, a Jewish person to intermarry with Gentiles, to to intermarry with non-Jewish people was sort of like being a sellout, you could say. In their minds, you were, in effect, polluting the pure strain of God's chosen people. And so uh, the children of these people, they were literally considered uh, half-bloods, or you might say mud-bloods, for those of you who are Harry Potter fans, right? Right? But this is the Samaritan people. Jewish people considered them half-bloods, dirty-blood people. And so Jewish people wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Samaritans. Right? Their bitterness towards them was so deep. And so Samaritans, understand, they were total outcasts. They had no access to the temple. Therefore, they had no access to worship. No access to the sacrificial system and therefore no access to God. Jewish people, get this, Jewish people would not even walk into Samaria because they didn't want to get Samaritan dirt on their sandals, right? That's how bad this was. But still, Jesus says in front of a bunch of Jewish people, the Samaritan did the right thing. When the Samaritan saw the man in need, saw his desperation, he felt compassion. But not only does he feel compassion, he actually acts on it. And look at verse 34. He went to him, that's again the Samaritan, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And so uh, after the Samaritan discovered that the the man had some wounds, that he was left there for dead, pummeled, naked, we see he doesn't turn away. Rather, he takes his own clothes. Maybe it was some extra clothes that he he had, or perhaps it was the the very clothes uh, on his back, and he starts to tend to this man, and he treats him with oil and wine as well. Oil to soothe and to aid the healing process. And wine as an antiseptic to sanitize. And note this word uh, there, that word pour. It's actually pretty intense. Uh, it's actually close to the word lavish, which means to give generously. And so Jesus is saying that the Samaritan was literally just pouring out what he had upon this man in need. Right? It's not just dabbing here and there. It's freely giving away. It's extreme generosity. It's lavish care. And then we see after he tends to his wounds, he puts him on his own animal. Perhaps it was a donkey. And then he, he guides him. He guides that animal and the man to an inn where the compassion just continues he just keeps caring for this man in need. And for how long? How long does he do this? Well, we know that he actually cares for this man all night long. Because look at verse 35. Jesus says, and the next day. And so again, the, uh, the context here, it leads us to believe that this man, this Samaritan, he stayed with this, this Jewish uh, broken man all night long. Caring for him, providing for him, looking after him, right? This is simply amazing. This is not minimal care. It's maximum care. And you would certainly think that that would be enough, but it just continues. Jesus just continues. So let's keep going. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So now, wanting to, to go on his way or to continue on his journey, we see the Samaritan puts uh, the man in the care, or the herding the, the man, in the care of the innkeeper. And with that, the story tells us that he gives the innkeeper to denarii. And at that time, get this, um, that would actually be somewhere between one and two months of room and board. Okay, he, he gives the man, two, two denarii, one to two months of room and board. But not only that, right? Notice again at the end of the verse, he adds even to that. He says, look after him, and when I return, I'm coming back, I will pay back anything extra you spend on him. That's what he says. In other words, I'm leaving an open account here. That's what the Samaritan does. It's just simply, again, it's simply amazing. Because as well, you need to know, understand the significance of debt in those days. Right At that time, if you had a debt to pay someone, you would actually become what's called an endangered, or an indentured, sorry, an indentured servant. Uh, it was actually a, a version of being enslaved to a person until you paid back what was owed. And so don't don't miss that detail because what the Samaritan is doing here is actually removing all possibility of future slavery by keeping an open tab. It's remarkable undeserved kindness from a stranger to a person who should be his enemy. And listen, uh, what Jesus was doing for all who would hear him is describe again what it was like or what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, for the Samaritan in the story, there was never a question, right, as he approached the man. There was never a question of, well, is this guy who's hurting, is he my neighbor or, or is he not, right? The only concern was how he could love the man to the full extent of of his need. Who he was, where he was from, it made absolutely no difference. He had compassion. And so he gave his time, he gave his energy, he gave his effort, and he gave his resources. And that's what it means to love your neighbor. Well, with that, Jesus then closes with a question. It's verse 36. He says, which of these, he's talking back to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, remember, the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? Right? He wanted boundaries to discern, these are my neighbors, and these are my non-neighbors. Basically, he was asking, who exactly do I need to love, and who can I avoid loving? But here, Jesus, in effect, is teaching him and says, there are no boundaries. The premise of your question, actually, is entirely wrong. There are no limits on who your neighbor is or who we are to love. Instead, Jesus is saying, our neighbor is whoever is in need around us. And this really gets us to the purpose of the parable, verse 37. He, the lawyer, responded. He said, the one who showed him mercy. See, the lawyer, notice this as well. He can't even bring himself to say the words, the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to that point. But Jesus said to him, he responds back, really simple. You go and do likewise. You want eternal life? You go and do the same as that Samaritan. Now, let's remember the overarching question of this story. The question was, how do I inherit eternal life? To which the answer is, or was, you get it by total devotion to God and an absolute love for neighbors, just like this Samaritan, and you need to do those things all of the time. And through this story, again, we see the standard is so, so high. The priest couldn't meet it. The Levite couldn't meet it. And what Jesus was saying to the lawyer and what he's actually saying to all of us is neither can we. And so what do we do? What do we do if there's no way to achieve this on our own? How is eternal life found And that's really what the rest of Luke's gospel and the rest of the New Testament is all about. You see, right before this parable, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read this. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And what is Luke talking about there? Well... Uh, he's talking about Jesus going to the cross. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection, and that that phrase, setting his face to go to Jerusalem, right? It's we see it a lot in Luke, but it's brought up so early in Luke's writing to show us that everything that comes after this is happening under the shadow of the coming cross, and therefore. We need to read this parable of the Good Samaritan and the rest of Luke under the shadow of the coming cross. And when we do that, we get our answer. Because the the cross answers the question of how we can be made right with God and inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus alone is the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus came uh, to live a life of complete love towards God and men. And he went to the cross in love to, to bear the just judgment we deserved because of our sin and our brokenness. And he did that to forgive us and to credit his perfect righteous record to our account, to all who would choose to trust in him. And so we inherit eternal life. We enter into his kingdom and into a deep and profound relationship with with him. Not because of any of our loving works, but because of Jesus's loving work on our behalf. So the way the good Samaritan loves here in this parable is actually a lot like the way that God loves us sinners, isn't it? And of course, so much more, so much greater Right? After all, who is the stranger from a foreign land who saves his undeserving enemies from certain death? Who is the one who, who came at our moment of greatest need while others just passed by without lifting a finger? Who is the one who mercifully rescues those without help or hope in this world? Who is the one who heals our wounds and carries our burdens? Who is the one who stays with us, not just through the night, but is always with us and promises to be with us? Who is the one who takes on all of our debt and saves us from certain slavery to sin and death? You know who. What great love. And that's the message of the good Samaritan. We cannot love perfectly, but Jesus, as the greater good Samaritan, can and he did. So run to him. Trust him as the only one who gives eternal life. And when you realize more and more his his radical grace and his neighborly love toward you, let it move you towards radical generosity to your neighbors. And so Freedom Village, let's be gripped by God's great love and radical grace for us. Let's be gripped and deeply moved by the realities of the cross. Because the, the more that we are gripped by it, the more that we will be moved uh, with compassion towards loving God and the world around us. And so let's be known as people who proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let's be known for that. But also let's seek to be good news in our city, nation, and world. Let's be a church of radical grace and neighborly love because we have been saved by the radical grace and neighborly love of the greater good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's pray together.